Hello, and welcome to The Polling Perspective, a podcast that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at public opinion polling and what's going on in politics today through a series of informal conversations between experts in the field. I'm your host, Doug Schwartz, and I've been directing the Quinnipiac University poll since 1994. Today, we're going to talk to Harry Enten, who is a senior writer and analyst for CNN Politics. Over the next half hour or so, we talk about everything from the difference between exit polls and pre-election polling to the state of the presidential race. We also even talk about what party identification actually is. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Harry. I certainly did. Harry, thanks for joining me. Shalom, my brother. It is a pleasure to be with such an esteemed gentleman such as yourself. Likewise. I thought where we would start is more about you, that we can jump into the polling world and, and the elections, but I thought it would be useful if our listeners learned a little bit about your background, your history, how you got the polling bug. When did you really start? What age were you when polling started to really interest you? It's a great question. You know, I, I was always in the numbers, right? You know, it started off with baseball statistics and football statistics. Uh, but my father, who was a judge in New York City, always thought that he needed to vote in order to look like so he should get reaffirmed or re, uh, reaffirmed to the bench because, you know, the mayor's first was Bean back in 77 or uh, 77 or 76. I can't quite recall. Then it was Koch who reaffirmed him in uh, 84 and then Giuliani in 95. Essentially, he always wanted to have a good voting record. So he consistently took me into the voting booth when I was younger. So I got sort of this bug. And then you combine it with the numbers. And so I would argue probably the first year in which I looked at polling much at all was 1998. And then I can recall in 2000, just a day or two before the election, the New York Daily News essentially had a spreadsheet of all of the polls and of all the swing states, and of course, the ironic thing about that was the talk before that election was Gore could win in the Electoral College and lose in the popular vote, and it ended up being the exact opposite. Let's jump into some of the polling stuff. You probably saw we released a few Senate polls recently, wanted to sort of get your take on that. We did Senate races in uh, Maine and South Carolina and Kentucky. And in one of the states, um, I think it's fair to say folks were surprised by our main numbers, Senate and president. I'm curious just sort of for your take in general, when you see a poll that's being called an outlier, how do you handle it? How do you process it? Sure. I mean, look, first off, obviously, it depends on the outlet it's coming from. Right. If it's an outlier from an outlet that I don't trust, you know, or I know has perceived bias or a large house effect, uh, that is the idea essentially being that they their polls overwhelmingly tend to be showing more Democratic or Republican results than the average. Then I might be more hesitant even to sort of incorporate that in my own perspective of things. Right. But if there's an outlier and it's from a poll that I trust. Then I think there's basically two ways to think about it, right? One is obviously someone like myself will always say average the polls. But the other way I'll sort of think about it is twofold. Number one, I actually like seeing outliers because it's an indication to me that the pollster isn't afraid to publish a result that is an outlier, right? 
There's this whole idea, uh, especially that I think we did see to some degree in 2016, we've seen it in foreign elections at large, where there's something called herding, where pollsters are afraid to deviate too much from the average. And so if a pollster is willing to put out a result that perhaps does deviate from the average, it actually gives me more trust in that pollster. Uh, the second way that I sort of think about it is that, look, it may be an outlier right now, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's an outlier when more data comes in, right? Every new trend starts with some outlier of some sort. So while obviously I might be hesitant in some instances to say, oh, this is the new state of play in the race, I do take outliers seriously. And I say, you know what, we might need to wait on some more information, but certainly any person who's worth their weight in understanding polling recognizes that outliers happen and that they should certainly, as long as you trust the pollster, be incorporated into the way you think about a particular race. You know, I, I have to say, I, I agree with you um, in how you look at the outliers, Harry, and that I do think it could show a trend and that they shouldn't be automatically dismissed because they're different. So I appreciate what you say. Um, and also the, the point that you make about trusting polls that are willing to publish outliers as a sign of they know they're going to get some flack, but they put it out anyway. They, they, you know, they trust their numbers. You raise another question in my mind about trusting of polls. And I would love to get sort of your general take. You don't have to name names about which polls you, you trust and which ones you don't, but more in terms of the methodology like or other things. What do you sort of look for in terms of a poll that you trust versus one that you don't? I mean, look, there are a number of different ways to sort of think about that. And, you know, sometimes I might think there are these awesome pollsters, then there are these horrific pollsters, and then most people are sort of in the middle. But, you know, one sign that I definitely take into account is transparency, right? If a pollster is willing to tell you what they're doing, and perhaps not all of that is necessarily listed in their write-up, but then you ask them questions and they're more than willing to answer them, I think that's very important. Uh, transparency, we know, has correlated over time with polls that end up being more accurate, at least as measured by the horse race, you know, whether it be Senate races, gubernatorial, presidential, even down to the House district level. So I think transparency is important. Uh, second, you know, I do think over time, at least when it comes to horse race stuff on the state level, I do still tend to trust phone polls that call cell phones the most. Uh, the reason being that, you know, as we've sort of jumped into the 21st century, and as someone who was born in the 20th century, and now we're all the way in 2020, it's shocking to me that we're already in 2020. I feel like the oldest man in the world. Uh, but as we've jumped into the 21st century, there have been new techniques that have been developed for polling, uh, online specifically, uh, and certainly nationally, I think a lot of the online polls uh, are trustworthy. You know, the YouGovs of the world, uh, for example. And, and so the question, though, ultimately in our politics is, what about the state level? Because that's where the elections are fought. And I'm not sure that we necessarily have the proof yet that the online polls have the sample sizes or the panels diverse enough to truly reflect uh, each state's electorate, especially the smaller states. 
So on the state level, I might give a little bit more credence to the phone polls that call cell phones. That doesn't mean I don't look at the internet polls. I certainly do, and I certainly believe they should be incorporated into the worldview, but maybe there's an extra foot on the pedal for those live interview polls. And the other thing that I will note is that someone like myself, and you know this, Doug, because I'm consistently emailing you for crosstabs, is that I'm interested not just in the overall picture, but also in how each individual uh, groups of, or how individual groups of voters are sort of stating their preferences to sort of get a better understanding of what's driving the election. And I will say that in order to make cross-time sort of comparisons, I do tend to trust the phone polls a little bit more. So, you know, if I want to know how whites without a college degree voted in 2020 or plan to vote in 2020 versus how they voted in 2016, uh, that to me is something that I might trust the phone polls a little bit more for. I was curious about the sample size uh, question that you mentioned that in state polls, sometimes they have smaller uh, samples. Is there is there a sort of a minimum number that you're looking for in terms of sample size that you would trust? I've noticed that there um, in some uh, polls this year that they have lower sample sizes than I'd like to see. I don't know if you sort of have a, a minimum. Yeah, I, I, it's a rather interesting question, right? And and I think that obviously, especially as you go into some smaller states, uh, it's harder to get those sample sizes up. You know, if we're polling New York, you know, it takes five seconds. You know, you can get a, you know, a fairly large sample size out of it uh, and one that's generally reflective of the state population. Look, I think that there are a lot of times trade-offs, right? Um, and in fact, you know, a lot of polls that have these ridiculously large sample sizes, you know, 1,500 or 2,000 at the state level have awful response rates. These are often polls that don't actually call cell phones, don't use live interviewers. Uh, there are these automated phones where essentially, you know, a machine, an auto dialer is calling you up and you hear a recorded voice of some sense. Um, look, there's the trade-off between sample quality sometimes and sample size. Right. Uh, and so some of the pollsters will rather say, you know, I think I'll trade off and have a smaller sample size if I believe the poll is generally reflect more generally reflective of the state's voting block. So, of course, I would rather have, you know, 800 folks, 900 folks uh, in, in my survey. But at the same time, I perhaps would prefer to have 400 with a sample that I think is more reflective of the state than 800 with one that isn't. Um, that being said, I think generally speaking, if I see under, say, 300 for a state poll, I'd be like, whoa. Uh, normally, I think the cutoff, more generally speaking, tends to be closer to 350, 400. Uh, and then obviously anything else from there is gravy. But of course, the, the key thing to keep in mind is a five-point lead with a 400-person sample size, you would has a much larger margin of error than a five-point lead with an 800-person sample size. So I don't necessarily treat the two equally, and there has to be a recognition, of course, that when you have a sample size that's just 400, your margin of error, without tape, taking into account any sampling design uh, design effects, um, is going to have a margin of error plus or minus, you know, 4.9, percent percentage points. And so, you know, a five-point lead is well within the margin of error in such a case because, of course, the margin of error applies to the individual candidates, not the margin between them. Right. And in this election in particular, with so many close 
uh, races in the states, I think, from my viewpoint, the, the bigger sample sizes, assuming again, you know, quality methodology, um, are become even more important when you're looking at, you know, one, two, three point races in a lot of these key swing states. One other question I had for you regarding sample size, because I've noticed fair amount of focus on small subgroups in this election. You had mentioned, just as an example, white college educated, and that's not a small subgroup, but we do in, let's say, our national polls have a relatively low number of Hispanics. And that number in particular, I've noticed over not just us, but all major national pollsters show the same thing. You have a small number, huge margin of error, and yet it seems like it's getting an outsized amount of attention to me that national polls have so much valuable data, both in you know, the top line results, lots of interesting questions you know, about voter attitudes, but also subgroups. We have plenty of subgroups that have big sample sizes, but there is one that doesn't have a... <laughs> And there's always this quandary that we have about, you know, if we don't report it, it's a subgroup that reporters and commentators are very interested in and will ask us for it. And then we'll be inundated with requests. So we're like, you know what, it's on the edge. We might as well put it out, but we know it's got a big margin of error. And typically we won't even talk about it in our, in our press release at all. And then it's just sort of like, we'll explode on Twitter. I think, you know, Hispanic Americans, are such an interesting group this election, in part because of what I think you're hinting at here, which is that they do seem to be more favorably inclined towards the president than they were four years ago, right? And I think that that is such a fascinating story because of the record that the president has on immigration, on uh, migrants coming into this country, and his overall rhetoric, especially in the 2016 campaign. So I think people just find that to be fascinating from that point of view. But I think you're getting a larger question here, which is something I see very often. And that is that people will take these small sample sizes on these subgroups or take these subgroups with these relatively small sample sizes and run with them. And you will see a lot of variance from one poll to another, even within pollster, because for the simple point, that if you're dealing with these low sample sizes, you have margins of error that are plus or minus 10 percentage points, if not higher. So you would expect to see a lot of variation from poll to poll. And I do understand this sort of hesitancy of pollsters to put out these data points that they know, while, you know, might be telling some story, it could tell a completely different story to in the next poll. Someone like myself, right, what am I doing? You know, if I'm doing a analysis of Hispanic voters, I'm going to try and grab all of the polls that I can. So I did an analysis a week or so ago, whenever exactly it was published. Maybe it was a few days ago, whatever. And I looked at, I think, 20 polls dating back to June, I think it was, because in doing so, I'm able to get an understanding, is this real or is this a fugazi? Because you will get a lot of these sort of, oh, my God, it's moving in this direction. But in reality, it's not. And so especially if you're looking for relatively small differences, you know, then you really do need these larger sort of 
analyses that take into account a ton of polling information versus, you know, if you are just interested, something that I've been interested in is the breakdown among black voters between younger black voters and older black voters. And the difference is so large that by, you know, combining, say, the CNN polls across the year, uh, which may, you know, get you to a sample size of maybe a thousand or so. Um, and then you have those under 50 and those older. So maybe it's closer to like 300, 350 versus 650, 700, because obviously older folks are more likely to respond to polls. Um, when you see, you know, a 25 point gap, even though the margin of errors are fairly wide, you have more confidence in saying, well, I can't be sure that the gap is 25 points between these two groups. I can feel fairly confident that younger black voters seem less favorably disposed to former Vice President Joe Biden than older black voters are. Gotcha. That, that is really interesting, Harry. And also, I did have a question about your analysis. Actually, two questions. One question I had was, so you were looking to see if this is real, looking at it nationally, not like Florida versus Arizona, but nationally. Are you finding, looking at the totality of the 20 polls that you've analyzed, are you finding the Hispanics are less likely to support Biden than they were Hillary Clinton in 16? Yeah, I mean, I, I believe so. You know, right now, essentially, if you look at across these 20 polls, what you're essentially seeing is Biden is leading Trump, right? It's not like he's in danger of losing the Hispanic vote. Uh, but he's leading Trump somewhere between, say, the margin I've done two separate analyses across different polls, and they one time it was like 25 points, and one time it was 28 points. And, you know, that's basically well within margin of error, what you might generally expect. Uh, while in the final polls, the pre-election polls of 2016, Clinton was leading by about 37 points. Um, and so there does seem to be uh, some decline in the... Uh, percentage of Hispanics who say they're going to vote for Biden versus Clinton. One thing I will sort of nerd out on very, very quickly is you'll notice I say I'm comparing the pre-election polls to the pre-election polls. Oftentimes we hear about people comparing the pre-election polls to the exit polls. And look, the exit polls are perfectly fine. They're just using a different methodology. And I like to be able to compare from one, from what the same methodology one year to the same methodology the next. And so that's something that I've certainly been keen on doing and certainly something I've really tried to do uh, over this election cycle. I'm glad you mentioned exit polls because I did want to ask you a question about exit polls that we often get asked. But before I do it, I want to ask one last question about the Hispanic vote. You had mentioned how fascinating it is, and I agree with you, that given the president's positions on immigration, his rhetoric about Hispanics, that it is surprising. I still haven't quite gotten a clear understanding, if, if you will, of why that's the case. It's a fascinating thing. Why do you think Hispanics are more favorable towards uh, President Trump in this election than they were in the last election? It's a very interesting question. And oftentimes the why is the more interesting. And sometimes you can't necessarily figure it out. I will say there are a few things, sort of three theories I've s sort of heard of. Uh, maybe there are four, but a, a few of them are one. Uh, we know that education levels are becoming even more lined up 
with voting patterns. We do know that Hispanics on the whole uh, tend to be more likely not to have a college degree than white voters are. So if we do see sort of Trump and the Republicans doing better among those with less than a college degree overall, it shouldn't be surprising than a group where perhaps they make up a disproportionate share that maybe we're seeing movement towards the president. Uh, second, I will say that um, the Trump campaign, especially in a state like Florida, I know we're talking nationally, but it is true in Florida and just nationally speaking, they've made some investment, right? They've made some voter outreach, and I, I think it'd be silly to dismiss that. Uh, the third I'll point out, as someone pointed out to me, is that George Bush did better the second time around in 2004 with Hispanic voters than he did in 2000. So it could be the case that maybe there's some sort of uh, feeling more comfortable with the incumbent. Um, so the idea essentially being that since now Trump is running again, maybe Hispanic voters vote in larger numbers for incumbents than they do um, challengers from the Republicans. I do know, you know, uh, uh, Alaska natives in uh, Alaska tend to vote in larger numbers for the incumbent, regardless of party. Uh, we've seen that sort of happen over time. So could that be the same with Hispanics? Maybe. But it's something, obviously, we have to wait and see. You know, if it actually ends up being the case, maybe we get to Election Day and Biden recovers with Hispanics. But for now, Trump is doing better than he did four years ago. I wanted to ask you about exit polls. Just even yesterday, we get asked the question. It's something very frequently happens to us is, our party identification, percentage of people that identify with Republicans, Democrats, independents, that people sometimes will look at what we report, compare them to exit polls in that state, or if it's a national poll, and say, well, you know what, if your numbers don't match up with the exit poll numbers, there's something off with your poll. How do you look at this question? You know, if, if I were a Christian, I'd do the sign of the cross at this particular point, like Biden does sometimes. God help them. Look, I, I, it's just, I do not believe in this sort of way. You know, we spoke about it. Exit polls have their own methodology. Pre-election polls have their other. Party identification changes. It's an attitude, right? There, while most of the people who are reading this poll information and taking it in, you know, are going to be Democrats today, Democrats tomorrow, or Republicans today, Republicans tomorrow, there is a small subset of the population who oftentimes decides elections who don't, who sort of weave in between the lines. And so the idea that we're going to wait on one survey, and remember, the exit poll is a survey. It is not some tablet handed down to Moses. It is a survey. It has its imperfections like anything else. And so, no, I don't believe in waiting to it. Now, there is some larger question. Well, I'll, first, before I get to that larger question, I will note by the way, I did this earlier this cycle, that I looked at the party identification in the pre-election polls in 2016 that were mostly accurate, right? I think the final average in the live interview polls was something like plus four uh, for Hillary Clinton. She won the popular vote by two, so that is well within the historical range of error. Um, and you look at the party identification in those polls and you compare it to the party identification we now see, actually turns out it's the same. It's the same. There has been no movement. It's, you know, so if we're going to pair the apples to apples, there's just no argument to be made. That being said, and, you know, you talk about the party identification, I do think there's some question if you're using a voter file, right? So the idea essentially being, you know, CNN poll does this, your poll does this in most states. 
um, you'll do a random digit dial, right? Which is essentially, you know, you have a, you're going to call up a bunch of numbers within an area code. And, you know, a lot of those numbers may be default, but you're going to find some good numbers in there. And you don't necessarily know these people's voting history. You don't know in the states, you know, like a state like Florida, where you do have party registration, you don't know what their party registration is. And sometimes people will will misrecall it, right? Um, Or misremember it. But there are some pollsters who do call off a list of known registered voters. I think the most um, influential of the two would probably be Monmouth University when they're calling state level polls uh, and the New York Times Siena College. Um, And in that particular case, when you do have a list and you know the registration of those folks, I think there's certainly a very good argument to be made that you can wait off of the party registration. And that's one of the main reasons you use that. The party registration is a known thing. It is almost like a demographic. It can change, but you know it off of the file versus party identification. It can be willy nilly and certain people can change how they feel today versus yesterday. And you'd have no idea necessarily what the baseline should be. That's a good point. And I know that there is some debate about what's the best way to go, RDD versus you know, the, the listed sample. And there's definitely some merits to the listed sample. But one of the concerns um, that I've had is about coverage, that we know that you know, in some states, the coverage is not nearly as good and just overall you can miss people that you don't have a match of a phone number to a name. So that that's yeah, our, our main concern, but I also recognize that, you know, there are these advantages that you have, you know, that, you know, the person is registered vote, you know, the voter history, you have party reg, there's a number of advantages to it. I think that's right, Doug. And, and you know, it should be pointed out, look, this is a country in which elections are, run by states and then underneath it run by counties and local municipalities. The records of voter files in some states are significantly better than they are in others. You know, Michigan, the voter file is really poor. Um, And so that's a state where maybe you want to take a second or two and be like, hmm, maybe that may not necessarily be the best place for, you know, uh, a voter registration based list sample. And we know that in the Southwest, in a state like Nevada, for example, um, that the polls tend to underestimate the Democratic candidate, at least compared to nationally. And part of that may be because there are a lot of new registrants that maybe the voter file isn't necessarily picking up all of the time. Uh, So, look, there are cases for both. Uh, I think that in some cases one might be better and some others might be better. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, as a consumer, I like the idea that we can have both. You know, I definitely believe strongly in our RDD polling. But at the same time, I, I'm also I also recognize that it's becoming less popular, if you will, at, um, at the state level, that at the national level, that's what the major national pollsters use is RDD at the state level. We're still doing things the way we've been doing them since I started back in 1994. So it'll be interesting to see how the polls perform um, in this election. Maybe we can jump into a little bit of election stuff. Just right now, what 
is it that you're looking for when you're trying to figure out what the state of the race? Are there particular questions? Are you looking at particular states, the nationals? Give me a sense of like, what are the most important things to you for telling you, you know, to tell you what the state of the race is? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the best way, especially in an environment in which the candidates are very well known at this point, uh, to understand where the state of the race is, is to simply ask, right, is to look at the horse race polls. If the voters had less of an opinion on the candidates, then perhaps some of those things that might get you an understanding of how they feel about certain issues and so on and so forth. Not that those aren't important, but focusing solely on understanding who's winning and losing, I think just the general who are you voting for question gets at it very well. Um, look, I'm looking at state polls. I'm looking at national polls, right? I think that there's an understanding, uh, generally speaking, that I think most people believe that Donald Trump's position in the Electoral College is stronger than his position nationally is, right? That is, if there's going to be one candidate who loses the popular vote and wins the Electoral College, it's probably going to be Trump, not Biden. Uh, that being said, I think we have some general guides to understanding how the popular vote will sort of coincide with the Electoral College vote. So, you know, if Joe Biden, who right now in the national polls has an average lead of about seven points, if that is the final result, the chance that Donald Trump wins in the Electoral College is basically nil. I'm sure that there's some universe where that happens is. I'm also, there's some universe in which there's a time machine created and Scott Norwood goes back and actually makes that 47-yard field goal. Look, we know that if Trump's margin, if he keeps the deficit in the popular vote down to, say, under five points and specifically three points or less, then there's a pretty good shot he wins in the Electoral College. Uh, and the reason you might look at the national polls would be, one, they tend to be more accurate on average than any individual state poll or state polling average. Two, they tend to be very frequent, so we get an understanding of that. Three, they tend to, you know, if especially we're trying to understand cross-tab analysis, I'd rather look at the national and there's a lot of high quality polls and we get an understanding of that. Uh, that being said, of course, look, this race is ultimately going to be fought in the Electoral College. Uh, and look, I'm looking basically at what I would call the core six, plus maybe a little bit more. And what I mean by the core six are the six closest swing states that Donald Trump won in 2016, Arizona, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Uh, and from those, Joe Biden needs to find, if I'm recalling my memory correctly, about 38 electoral votes. Uh, and there's been a lot of focus, rightly so, on Florida and Pennsylvania, because those are the two biggest parts of that pie with 29 and 20 electoral votes, respectively. That being said, Right now, what's really interesting to me is it does seem that Joe Biden is overperforming in a state like Arizona. He is winning in the polling that's coming in from Michigan. He is winning in the polling that's coming in from Wisconsin. Uh, and if you add those three states together, plus the Clinton states, and then you add in my sort of, you know, we were talking earlier about the fact that we have localized elections in a state like Nebraska. It awards two electoral votes to the statewide winner and one electoral vote to the winner of each of the congressional districts. And right now, the evidence does suggest that Joe Biden's winning in that second congressional district that encapsulates Omaha. It's a very well-educated district. Uh, and if you add that one to Michigan, to Arizona, to Wisconsin, and you add in the Clinton states, you get to 270. 
So that is a very interesting map and one that I might argue is the fastest way for Biden to get to 270. So I'm looking at all that stuff. But overall, I'm not focusing in on any one state. I'm probably focusing on a group of states. And then obviously, I'm keeping my eye out for stuff from like Texas and Ohio, Nevada, New Hampshire to see if anyone is really making gains in perhaps places you might not necessarily expect. You had mentioned Arizona and Michigan as states that Biden is doing better in. Are these surprises to you that, you know, Arizona being much more diverse and then you've got Michigan and Wisconsin in terms of a pattern? You're right. Look, Michigan and Wisconsin are two states in the Midwest that are overwhelmingly white, that have a majority share of that vote will be whites without a college degree. That's not the case in Arizona, right? Uh, Maybe 70% of the vote will end up being white in Arizona, which is basically matching the national level, if not, might end up slightly below. Uh, And there are a lot of Hispanics in a state like Arizona, much more so than the nationwide average that will probably end up being about 10%. Uh, So those states don't look similar. That being said, Arizona has been a state, you know, Kristen Sinema became the first Democrat elected to that state in 2018 since uh, Dennis DeConcini, if my memory is correct, when he won in 1988. That state has been moving to the left. And if the story of the 2016 election was whites without a college degree in the North voting much more like their brethren in the South than the story of the 2018 midterm election and perhaps the 2020 presidential election will ultimately be whites with a college degree in the South voting much more like their brethren in the North. And in a state like Arizona, there are a lot of whites with a college degree in the suburbs of Phoenix who have traditionally been Republican, who have been shifting very fast to the left. And so it's a real opportunity to pick up for the Democrats. While in states like Wisconsin and Michigan, what you might be seeing is twofold. One is something called mean reversion, right? It was a state that shifted rapidly in 2016. Perhaps we'll see a little bit tilt back towards the 2012 voting patterns in 2020. And then the second thing I'll point out is just generally speaking, while Biden may have a problem with Hispanic voters, uh, he's doing significantly better than Clinton with white voters. And if you're going to see that in any place, probably going to be in the upper Midwest in states like Michigan and Wisconsin. I'm thinking about the four states that we've been polling on the four battlegrounds that we're currently finding Biden ahead by, but they're not in sort of your scenario where, you know, what Biden would need in terms of getting to the 270. So we have Florida right now, Biden up by three, Pennsylvania, Biden up by eight. And we have basically a tie in Ohio and Texas, though we haven't pulled them in a while. Of the four, well, I think I know the answer, but I'll still ask you. What's Biden's best pickup chance and probably, or maybe what's his least likely of those four? Yeah, I I think that those four are very interesting. Look, uh, if Joe Biden wins in Florida, the chance that Donald Trump wins this election is less than 5%. That was the, one of the key signs in 2016 that Trump was very competitive on election night was when he was doing well in the early returns from Florida. The polling there is close. Your poll had it three points. I think the average has it like two, two and a half, three. So right on the button there. It's a big state. It has 29 electoral votes. If Biden wins there, this election's probably over. If Trump wins there, he lives to see another day and he may very well win the election. Pennsylvania, though, is probably of those states, um, I would argue, the most important insofar as that if 
you know, if we talk about sort of the quote unquote tipping point state, that is the state that would cast, you know, if you were to line up all the states in a row, it's the state that has the median electoral vote plus one, right? Right in that middle. Um, and it would be the state that's most likely to put a candidate over the top in the electoral college. And your poll has it on the higher end, right? As we spoke about earlier, you know, some polls have Biden up, you know, eight or nine. Some might have him only up two or three. And the average has him up probably about five. If Biden wins in Pennsylvania, it's probably also over. Um, so those are two key states. Ohio, to me, is fascinating insofar that both campaigns, to my knowledge, are advertising fairly heavily in the state. We have not had a lot of data from that state recently. I'd be very interested in some fresh data from that state. Uh, and, you know, if Biden wins there, it's going to be a very long election night for Donald Trump, right? He won it by, what, eight points back in 2016. The fact that we're still talking about it right now as a competitive state, I think, is an indication of the state of play. And then obviously in Texas, we really haven't had any high quality polling from a long time there. And if Arizona is a state where you're looking at the suburbs, whites with a college degree shifting quickly to the left, then that's especially the case in a state like Texas. Uh, and Texas is worth 38 electoral votes. While it's probably not going to be the state that puts a candidate over the top in the electoral college, if Joe Biden wins the Hillary Clinton states plus Texas, he gets to 270. It's a pretty important state. It also has a Senate race that's up there. Democrats are trying to take back the state house. I find Texas interesting, and I'll just end by saying I believe Texas is more competitive right now than a state like Minnesota, where Trump is investing time and money in, and that probably also gives you an indication of the state of play that Biden, while certainly it's not a sure deal by any stretch, is ahead nationally, because if Texas is closer than Minnesota, it's not exactly looking fantastic for the president of the United States. I think that's actually a great place to sort of end it. This has been so interesting for me, Harry. I really appreciate it. I look forward to more conversations over the remainder of the campaign. It's going to be a fun time. If you love elections, you don't love the final, you know, 45 days or so, then you don't really love elections. I agree. All right. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Polling Perspective, a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio in partnership with the Quinnipiac University Poll. Our podcast is produced by David DeRoche, Samantha Stella, and Mark Bouchard. For more information on The Poll, visit poll.qu.edu. For more information on our podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at QU Podcasts and at Quinnipiac Poll. I'm Doug Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us for our next episode.